In June, Democratic state lawmakers pushed through legislation designed to ensure the timely development of an offshore wind project planned for the coast of Long Island. The bill, which is labeled as the Planned Offshore Wind Transmission Act, also includes language that could directly impact the future of parkland and waterfront in Nassau County. To discuss the impact of the legislation, we're joined on the Capitol Press Room by Julie Tai, president of the New York League of Conservation Voters. Welcome back to the program, Julie. Thanks for having me on, Dave. It's our pleasure to hear from you, as always. So what does the Planned Offshore Wind Transmission Act actually do, and how significant is it to the development of offshore wind projects in New York? So there are two main components of this bill. One is, as the state is looking to enhance the amount of offshore wind that they're doing, and right now we have a state goal of nine gigawatts of, uh, of energy from offshore wind by 2035, but as they plan to build out, and we had actually promoted a bill this year to increase that goal up to 20 gigawatts by 2050, there's really a call for looking at how can we make sure that we're doing planning to bring that power onto shore in a way that's most cost effective, that has the least impacts on marine life and marine habitat and other users, right? So that we are bringing that power in in a way that's best for end users, for the ratepayers of the state of New York. Secondly, there's a portion of the bill that allows for the temporary alienation of parkland to bury a transmission line to bring a, a project called Empire Wind 2 uh, onto Long Island so it can be connected with the substation. Um, and it would come to Long Island in, in the city of Long Beach in Nassau County um, and connect with the substation in Island Park, which is just a little bit inland, which would allow for in the not too distant future, um, bringing all all told through the Empire Projects over two gigawatts of offshore wind to shore. And that's enough energy to power one million homes. So with clean energy, and we believe it would enable the, the closure of the Barrett power plant that's located right in that community and therefore be cutting off fossil fuel usage. So what are the practical implications of the parkland alienation component of this legislation? Does that essentially mean that parkland is now going to be home to transmission lines? Is it something else going to happen? What does it mean in the future? So in the immediate future, what it means is that the city of Long Beach can negotiate with Equinor, who's the company that is advancing this Empire Wind project, to determine how they can use this piece of land to bring the transmission line to shore. Right. The idea is that the, the line will be buried. So it would basically be allowing for a temporary disturbance and occupation underneath parkland. And as soon as construction is done, the parkland would be replenished and would be able to be used again for the public. So it's really more of a temporary use of this parkland from a, the public's perspective. There would still be the transmission line running underneath the property, but it should not be something that disturbs or, or in any way inhibits the use of that parkland. And is there anything that would incentivize local officials to actually negotiate with the offshore wind operator and the transmission line developers in this circumstance? Or could they simply say, no, we're not interested in being the home of this? 
They could say no. Now, previously, the city of Long Beach has approved what's called the Home Rule message and expressing their support for advancing this measure to enable them to enter into this negotiation. And certainly we've seen projects successfully be negotiated with other communities out in East Hampton, where the first commercial offshore wind project in the country is actually being constructed right now. Uh, the town negotiated a community benefits agreement with the, the developer, in that case, a company called Orsted. They've similarly negotiated an agreement with the town of Brookhaven to bring the next project ashore, which is called Sunrise. So there, there is history on Long Island of, of having these negotiations to bring these projects onto shore uh, and for the communities to benefit from that. So this is the same thing that we expect would happen and should happen in Long Beach, as well as in neighboring communities uh, like Island Park, that again, will be home to a, a substation to allow for the distribution of that power. Now, a community benefit agreement is something that could result in you know, a reduction in property taxes, potentially could result in investments in in other parkland or in community centers, in teen centers or, or senior centers, could result in um, you know, some purchase of some equipment. It, it depends really on what the community wants. And so I, I would expect that um, assuming Governor Hopeful signs this bill, that Equinor and the city of Long Beach and Island Park and, and neighboring communities would, would really talk about what types of projects or support they might be looking for in exchange for being home to this clean energy infrastructure. You mentioned the home rule component of this legislation and the idea that Long Beach community had uh, issued a home rule request. In preparing for this interview, though, I was watching the assembly debate over this legislation and there did not seem to be a home rule message presented as part of that discussion. So was there some sort of change in attitude or change in the home rule that was issued by Long Beach? No, it appears as though some some politicians decided that they didn't want to advance um, the, the legislation that would have uh, the original piece of legislation that the community uh, did express support for, um, but the exact same language was inserted into a different bill, right? So it's not that they changed their minds about the project and actually members of the, of the city council sent a letter in support of the legislation before it was passed, as did many other environmental advocacy organizations like the League of Conservation Voters and our friends in the Citizens Campaign for the Environment and many organizations from labor who are expressing support for advancing this project. And certainly we believe that this is a project of statewide significance, given that, you know, again, all told, we're talking about two gigawatts of offshore wind energy out of a total under contract of about 4.3 gigawatts and towards a goal of nine gigawatts uh, that's presently on the book. So this is a very substantial amount of offshore wind that would be impacted by this piece of legislation, uh, which is why we were so supportive of it and why it needed to get done before the legislature went home. And in terms of the timeliness of this and it needing to get done before the legislature finished its legislative session, why does it need to happen now? And do we need to see the governor act on it in the near future or can she wait until the end of 2023 to sign the measure? I would not expect that this would be a bill that would be delayed till the end of the year. I think that there is a timely timeliness factor. You know, the company is going through the environmental review and permitting process, and there needs to be a certain ability for the company to access where they're going to bring their project to shore. 
in order for them to demonstrate to the various reviewing agencies that they have all the things that are necessary to advance the project. Because in order to know what environmental impacts there could be, uh, they need to know exactly what resources they're going to be going through. Um, so to me, this was a very timely factor. You know, we have to have all this energy online in the next few years, and the permitting process is very robust, and it takes a while to get through. So it really was a, a time-sensitive measure that I would expect to see the governor sign sooner rather than, or, or to act on sooner rather than later. And are there alternative pathways that were under consideration for these transmission lines, but for either other environmental reasons or financial reasons, didn't make sense? Or has this been the only destination that's been examined uh, as part of the Empire Wind 2 development? I'm not familiar with all of the paths that were reviewed, but it is very rare for a company not to look at multiple potential locations on where to bring it in. And you choose you choose a, a location that in this case is very near to a lot of energy infrastructure because, again, the community already hosts this fossil fuel power plant. Um, that So there's a lot of energy infrastructure in there already uh, that you want to try to take advantage of. Certainly that makes it cheaper, not just for the developer, but more importantly for the ratepayers. Um, so that is always going to be a component, but it's also looking at how you can minimize the impacts on wildlife and on fish and on the, the fishery habitat um, and making sure that that's being done in, in a way that is best for the environment. So it is it is that combination of things of what where do you need to bring the power to? How can you reduce the impacts on the ratepayers so they are not paying excessive amounts of money for this energy infrastructure? And most importantly, is making sure that we are doing it in a way that's environmentally responsible. So all of those things are always factored in when, when they're choosing the actual locations. Is the parkland alienation component of this legislation, is it unique to the Long Island community that is impacted in this case? Or does this language potentially apply to other communities around the state that might need to see parkland alienated in order to accommodate transmission lines or other renewable energy aspects? So the language is specific to this particular project and this particular location at this point in time. Whenever you alienate parkland um, under the public trust doctrine, (laughs) the public is entitled to make sure that they're they're continuing to receive access to public amenity of a park, um, which is really sound policy. So in this case, it it requires the legislature to approve on a a case-by-case basis whether or not land can be used for various purposes to make sure that the public still has access to those parks. So if someone else had an energy project that needed to go through a park, they would also need to go back and, and get legislation passed. But I do think that had the bill not advance, um, it could have been used as a tactic to stop the development of offshore wind or other renewable energy projects going forward. And we certainly don't want that to happen. Well, moving forward, in order to achieve the offshore wind goals that you've talked about today, how much more transmission needs to be built out on Long Island? And will it require some sort of accommodations, even in temporary ones like the ones we're talking about today? Yes, we're going to need more transmission. Um, We just saw that the New York State Independent System Operator, which is the the entity that makes sure that we have enough energy to power all of our state, 
um, just approved a project called Propel New York, which will make sure that it can bring power off of Long Island up, upstate and vice versa. Um, so that is going to accommodate, I think it's up to nine gigawatts of energy. So that that is a project that's moving forward that's mostly onshore. Um, that, that's again, Long Island up, up into the Bronx and into the city and upstate. And again, the first part of this bill, as you noted from the name of the bill, is looking at planning transmission so that we're looking at what can be done to minimize the amount of impacts that happen both out in the ocean as well as um, bring the power to shore. So that is why this bill seeks to get a plan done and some analysis done looking at both cost benefits as well as those potential impacts on on sea life to make sure that we are minimizing the amount of of uh, energy infrastructure that needs to be built to support this effort. Well, finally, the component I think that does not get a lot of attention in this debate is this idea that NYSERDA is going to conduct more planning around shared offshore wind transmission infrastructure uh, if, if the state increases its target beyond the current nine gigawatts uh, for 2035. Does that mean that the state is not doing enough planning or, or that we need to be planning for a, a different type of future? I think they're doing a lot of planning and it's going to be something that continues to build on each other, right? As we're, we're talking about changing how we get our energy, right? Right now we get it from these, these power plants, which are very, you know, they have a certain footprint um, on the ground, but they also have a, an awful lot of pollution that they're putting out into the air. And now we're shifting away from that energy source to these more disparate sources where you have solar and wind and hydro and geothermal and offshore wind. Um, and so we need to make sure that we're, we're looking at all of these pieces and figuring out how can they fit together in the way that is most cost effective, that is least harmful to the ratepayers that is going to be really protecting the environment. So I think there is NYSERDA and the State Public Service Commission are doing a lot of planning. Um, but as we continue to grow our resources, they're going to need to do additional planning to make sure that we're prepared for that. So I think there's a lot to be said for advancing um, another planning effort when we know that uh, according to the scoping plan of the climate action plan, that we're ultimately going to need to get up to 16 to 19 gigawatts of offshore wind, if not more. And as I as I said at the top of this, you know, we did uh, advance legislation um, that Senator Kavanaugh and Assemblywoman D.D. Barrett put in that would increase that objective to 20 gigawatts by 2050. So there's there's a lot to do. And it seems like a far, a far way away, but when you're talking about planning energy transmission and, and how long it takes energy projects to go through the permitting and review process um, and to make sure that they have the appropriate conversations with the community, which we encourage all to do, whether you're, you're talking about developing transmission, you're talking about developing solar, you're talking about developing offshore wind, you have to talk to the community where the projects are going to be located so that people have a clear understanding about what's happening and what what the possibilities are for them to to benefit um, and and if there's any risks, which I think in this case is is fairly minimal. Well, we've been speaking with Julie Tai. She is the president of the New York League of Conservation Voters. Julie, thank you so much for making the time. Mm, thank you for having me on. It's great to talk about wind any single time.
Support for the Capitol Press Room provided by the New York State AFL-CIO, a federation of 3,000 unions fighting for working people by keeping New York State union strong. Visit unionstrongny.org for more information. Join us again for Capitol Press Room, a production of WCNY Connected, Syracuse.